Spider-Man and Captain Britain. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Martin Gray. Taking you through a classic superhero team-up, Spider-Man and Captain Britain from Marvel Team-Up number 65 and 66, cover dated January and February of 1977, introducing Captain Britain. But Martin, this isn't the character's first appearance, is it? It isn't, no. He'd actually been around for about... Ooh, just over a year, had his own weekly comic from Marvel UK, and had it already been cancelled by then. So it was a bit of a sadness, really. Already cancelled? Already cancelled. Yeah, he, he had about uh, 39 weekly issues, and then he was absorbed into Spider-Man comic. Okay, well, so he survived. <laughs> yes, in a sense. So as you can hear, my voice is a little scratchy. Um, it'll be scratchy on a number of, of, of episodes across the, the, the Fire and Water line. I caught a cold, and uh, so you get to have the... The more bassy ciscoid. <laughs> Rather sexy. Mm, thank you. Well, in each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. So in this case, Martin, who's your guy? It has to be the United Kingdom's greatest defender. Well, in 1976, Captain Britain. Well, that makes sense. It makes sense that you'd be the guest for this. It would rather. I'm pretty darn British. Living in Scotland, but English, but basically British. So I will necessarily... I, I, I'm not disappointed but I, i'll be taking spider-man <laughs> not so bad could do worse as is customary we'll preface with reasons uh, or a reason why we like the character we've chosen so martin what's so great about captain britain well i mean when i was a kid in the early 70s marvel uk started his weekly comics black and white reprinted hulk spider-man for all sorts of things then after about two three years they gave us an original comic character captain britain in his own weekly comic and after years of just having picking up the scraps the black and white reprints chopped into little chunks weekly we were getting new material and it was in color and it was by actual pretend britons chris claremont who was born in england and lived in america and herb trimpey who once visited cornwall on holiday <laughs> and yeah the character was super super derivative he was a student like spider-man who could transform by a magical talisman like thor he was an acrobat like Daredevil in Captain America, but he was specially made for the British kids. And Claremont, he wrote recognisably bombastic Marvel scripts, and Trimpey and Inca Fred Kidder channeled Jack Irby to pretty good effect. And it was fun. And another little bonus for me is that Brian Braddock, who was very posh in the comics, he was born in Essex, but he was educated here in Edinburgh, at a place called Fetters College, which is just down the road from where I work, so I feel that, you know, I'm almost his best pal. We have the same sort of feelings about Alpha Flight over here. You know, it's not necessarily the best comic book sometimes. Uh, not all the characters are, are necessarily great. But the, just the fact that they exist and that they're from your country, when everyone else seems to be centered on New York City in the Marvel Universe, it makes them special. It makes them your own, warts and all. It absolutely does. I mean, I've never gotten over having to share Captain Britain with the Americans, you know. <laughs> <laughs> He was our secret. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because, he, yeah, so we'll talk about this publication history soon. So why do you like Spider-Man? Why are you defending him? Uh, well, you know, because I must. But, um, you know, Spider-Man returns many times uh, on this show, of course, because he had his own Marvel team-up 
series. So I'll just name one thing that, that I might say about Spider-Man this time okay. is that I like the way uh, Stan Lee talks about the creation of Spider-Man. <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing to say, but regardless of whether it's true or not, his whole story that I've heard many times where he goes, uh, so then we needed a, you know, I had like the, uh, was it a bug man? No. Um, <laughs> you know, grasshopper man? No. You know, fly man? No. Then I thought, Spider-Man, yeah! Uh, <laughs> that that whole story, and we used to tell it all the time. We used to do the voices, uh, me and my friends who read comics, <laughs> because it's so, it's just it's like a, a Stan Lee story that it doesn't have to have happened. It's just a good story to tell, you know? Just Absolutely. The, where he's yeah. just looking at, you know, at insects on the wall sort of thing and, and figuring it out. So I, I love that about the the... the, the possible genesis of spider-man is just such a silly thing like that and i guess i'll have to do a, a spider-man why spider-man many times so uh if that left you a bit hungry for more there will be more later oh yeah in the stanley voice please yes <laughs> yeah and I, i just can't do it right now but no, normally i can do the stanley voice um <laughs> spider-man as we said needs no introduction everybody knows spider-man so let's talk about captain britain's publication history can you tell us a bit about that martin a little bit yes captain britain debuted in Captain Britain Weekly in 1976 with the fantastic free gift because British comics always tended to have a free gift in the first two or three issues and the free gift in this case was a cardboard Captain Britain mask. It was the top of the mask that you see in the comics, the Union Jack bit that you could attach to your head with string or and just feel just like Captain Britain. And the comic didn't have a glossy cover like the rest of the Marvel Weeklies, which were all reprint, but this did have colour strips for Captain Britain in the first eight to ten pages. And at the back of the book, Nick Fury by Jim Steranko. And in the middle, you had Fantastic Four in very dull, dull, dull mono. And it was just Captain Britain really stood out compared to the other characters. And I believe the character design was by John Romita Sr. At least that's what Herb Trimpey said, so he's not claiming it, so he should know. And this comic toddled along until about issue 24, by which time the sales weren't as good as they were, so it was back to being black and white, like the rest of the weeklies, and Chris Claremont and her tribute gone, and we were having Gary Friedrich and Larry Lee the writing, but we had the bonus of John Buscema and Tom Palmer on the art. It was good, it was still interesting. But by issue 39, the book ended, and Cat was falling into Spider-Man Comics Weekly. He was there for about 20 issues, and the last story that appeared in the book was the very team-up that we're covering today. About a year later, Cat re-emerged in Hulk Weekly, which was the first all-new material British comic edited by Des Skin, who's a big name in British comics, Edited Warrior. And he shared a strip with the Black Knight, and it was a really, really good story steeped in our fury and mysticism that came to be known as the Otherworld Saga. And it was good because the story suited both characters, Chadwick with Origin, written by Steve Parkhouse, drawn by Paul Neary and John Stokes. And it was the first time that British comic creators had touched Brian, which sounds all kinds of wrong. Then a couple of years later, Brian got his own solo series again in a monthly comic, Marvel Superheroes, and he got his brilliant new costume that he had for about 20 years, courtesy of Alan Davis, who had begun writing the strip. And around the same time, he was back in the old red and yellow outfits for the rubbish US Contest of Champions miniseries. And it seemed that we response to Marvel superheroes, including my own letters, that the Captain Britain starring in a new monthly, The Daredevils, worked that one out, in 1982. And when that ended within a year, there's a pattern there, he was in another anthology, Mighty World of Marvel. Then finally, in 1985, Captain Britain got a self-titled group again, Captain Britain Monthly, with Alan Davis now writing and drawing, and soon he was guesting in US books more regularly, such as Captain America and the X-Men. Then from 1987, 
He got a permanent berth in the US Marvel's Excalibur comic, courtesy of Alan Davis again and Chris Claremont. And there was a minor blip of some appearances in Marvel UK's Knights of Pendragon book that ran a while. But since then, he's been pretty much in the hands of Marvel US, although, you know, he's had British creators on him like the excellent Paul Cornell. And nowadays, he has a hipster beard and looks absolutely ridiculous. Well, I was, I personally enjoyed Paul Cornell's take on the character in uh, Captain Britain and MI13. Was he the one who really fiddled with the powers? Because in MI13, it was like Captain Britain's powers were came from his own confidence kind of thing. It did, yeah, yeah. They, they, over, over the years sort of thing, originally the powers came from the amulet, then they were in, in his costume and in the star scepter, then they were just in the costume. And finally, it was, it was that, yeah, he could have them when he wasn't in the costume, but he had to believe in himself because he had to have you know, the confidence of the British people and things. And the powers pretty much lessened if he went to America, unless he was feeling super confident. It's just, it seems like if the last, you know, 15, 20 years, whoever writes Captain Britain can just fiddle around with him, change his name to Britannic, whatever. He's never really been as good, I think, as when he was written by Alan Moore and drawn by Alan Davis. So, Perhaps one day I'll have a resurgence. Paul Cornell's take was excellent, though. I found it very interesting that you mostly stayed to the the UK side of of the publishing, which is the the part that we don't really know anything about over here. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking, as far as I'm concerned, you know, he had all those years next Excalibur, and then he was just relegated to guest appearances for a while. Had the MI13 stuff. As far as I, I don't think they've actually had a solo a solo book since the 1980s. So. I thought I could probably just, you know, stop with the British bit. Yeah, no, that's it. That's fine. I'm okay with that. So let's look at these issues. This is a double feature, kind of rare in Team Up books. Uh, yeah, let's do a little synopsis here. Let's go for it. It's called Introducing Captain Britain by writer Chris Claremont and the art team of John Byrne and Dave Hunt, as edited by Archie Goodwin. When Peter Parker oversleeps, he finds himself swinging to university an hour late for a scheduled mystery meeting with the Dean. But his fears are allayed when he gets there, and it's uncharacteristically not bad news. Rather, the Dean wants him to meet... British exchange student from Thames University in London, Brian Braddock. It seems that when Peter got his scholarship, he signed up to eventually take an exchange student as a roommate. Inconvenient, except for the $50 a week he'll get paid. Welcome to the Big Apple, Brian. Meanwhile, back in the United Kingdom, 3,500 miles away, two members of the Magia's European branch, the Commission, are ushered into a private jet by a slinky young lady. They're introduced to, quotes, the finest assassin in the world, close quotes, Arcade, who looks like a ventriloquist dummy in a Saturday night fever suit. He takes their one million commission to kill student Brian Braddock, currently in the States, and one of around 50 men suspected of being Captain Britain. They want the superhero dead because the blight has been disrupting operations. God knows what he's messed up with. They're willing to pay out maybe 50 million to get all the possibles. But there you go. A few metres away, in a sexy sports car, eavesdropping by a snazzy shotgun mic is a mystery woman. She's on the phone to her operator. Presumably some UK spy organisation such as Strike, the organisation that was equivalent to S.H.I.E.L.D., saying that she can protect the British targets of the Magia. But the Braddock boy is on his own. In Peter Parker's Chelsea flat... Peter checks in on the sleeping Brian Braddock before putting on his Spider-Man costume and going to the window. Where he is caught by the awakened Braddock, he slings out. Brian rubs his magic amulet and transforms into Captain Britain, hero of the UK, having noticed that Peter's not there, but Spider-Man's flying, flying, swooping from the window. 
Brian Brannock jumps out into the street and he flies via his star scepter, think Cosmic Rod, and catches up to Spider-Man, stopping him in his tracks with a well-aimed kick to the spider bollocks. Spider-Man recognizes his assailant's voice from somewhere, but the mask distorts his accent. People in a nearby building are making noise complaints. Spidey heads for an empty construction site and throws a steel beam at his opponent. <laughs> Forget it, colonial commoner. The star scepter can generate a force field. Fire on your stinky, overprotected U.S. Trumpian steel. Spidey enters the half-finished building and makes his assailant follow him. As he does so, he names himself Captain Britain, which makes Spider-Man realize, by the sheer force of the coincidence, that Britain is Brian Braddock. Leading him to a doorway that opens on the outside of the building, Spider-Man ambushes Braddock, grabs his rod, and and makes <laughs> Captain Britain fall several stories. Spidey catches him with his webs before he hits the ground and explains he's one of the good guys, only in Peter's apartment because they have a deal and lets Pete take pictures of him for the bugle. Brian shares his origin flashback time, fleeing from a terror attack at a nuclear base on a blasted heath. He stumbled into a mystical realm where he was told by a Merlin type and the Merlin's daughter type that it's his destiny to be the UK's champion of justice. But with great power comes great responsibility, and I'm not making this up, the dialogue says that. He has a choice of mystic talisman, sword of might or amulet of right. As he's a lover, not a fighter, or as he says, a scholar, he opts for the clunky chain amulet and is assured that he's made the right choice as he grows burlier and finds himself clad in a tight, clingy red costume. Now and forever he is dot 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 Captain Britain. Just then, a police helicopter shows up asking for both heroes' surrender. Spider-Man bolts and tells Britain to do the same. They evade police captain Gene DeWolf, who is specifically looking for them. As they turn the corner, a garbage truck scoops them up. A garbage truck driven by Arcade. Da da da. In part two, Spider-Man and Captain Britain wake up, trapped in glass balls. <laughs> As Spidey and Cap try to work out their surroundings, they're watched by monitors by Arcade and his hench people, Miss Locke and Mr. Chambers. See what he did there? As we're just in the part two, Arcade lets new readers know that he's been hired to kill a limey Joe College named Brian Braddock, for reasons we already know. Instead, he's nabbed Captain Britain himself, and he's rather looking forward to seeing how much he can get for offing him and Spider-Man. Plus, Arcade is relishing the prospect of unleashing the worst murder world has to offer. The balls are released into the game, and our heroes become human pinballs. Wondering why their unknown assailant didn't just kill them, Spider-Man boosts his resolve by thinking of Mary Jane Watson and shatters his glass prison. He next creates a pile of webbing to redirect Captain Britain's ball and shatters that too, hitting it at the same time and spot as his British counterpart does. As the day's British hero gathers his faculties, there's a foreboding sound. A giant ball is heading for them, and it's growing spikes. Happily, it's just a harmless distraction, an illusion intended to position the heroes over two trapdoors. Brian falls down one and gets a big surprise. It's his girlfriend from England, Courtney Ross, trapped inside a giant treasure scoop machine like you find at funfairs, a prize to be picked or pulverised. The voice of Arcade informs Cap that Courtney has a couple of minutes of breathable air only. He races to find the controls of the scoop, only to be nearly killed by a couple of funhouse mirror doppelgangers. Only the memory of life with Courtney gives him the strength to defeat the dire doubles. Meanwhile, Spider-Man is avoiding the bullets of a robot cowboy. He knocks his block off, but is then attacked by toy jets, tanks, and soldiers. Ignoring the projected illusion of a battlefield, Spidey finds the wall, rips himself an opening, and escapes in a maintenance shaft. Captain Britain reaches the controls of the grabber, 
only to find a new obstacle, fast rising water flowing into the chamber. Can he tread water long enough to stop Courtney's glass box becoming a coffin? In the maintenance tunnel, Spider-Man is smashing everything, hoping it'll help and not blow them all to kingdom come. Spidey doesn't know it, but his actions are causing the grabber power to cut out. The machine is working only in fits and starts. With the water up to his head, Brian reckons he's got just one chance to save the beauteous Courtney. Just around the corner, Spider-Man crawls out of the maintenance shaft and tries to break into Arcade's control center. An impressed Arcade pushes a button that opens a different door for Spidey, revealing Captain Britain's water trap. He swings into action and frees the waterlogged hero. Spidey then helps Cap break Courtney out of her casing, and Peter realizes that she means as much to him as Mary Jane means to him. Just then, Spider-Man smells... gas! Up in his control chamber, Arcade's employees want to leave before the systems blow due to Spider-Man's sabotage, but the villain is having the time of his life. Still, he's got to throw in the towel when the consoles explode. Down below, Spidey finds a wall that doesn't trigger his Spider-Sense, so he rips it open and leads Captain Britain and Courtney out of Murder World, through the sewers, and onto a darkened New York street, right in front of a police car. They're about to arrest Spidey when Gene DeWolf comes on the scene. She takes charge. She's been trying to contact Captain Britain because of the hit ordered by the Magia, but it's all resolved now as some lone wolf attacked the Familia Punisher style, and they're in disarray. The wolf drops Spider-Man off scot-free, a favor she owes him. And elsewhere, Arcade vows to rebuild Murder World and invites Spider-Man to a rematch. So that's that's the team up. Um, not much for uh, Captain Britain to do there at the end, I find. Not really. It's like he just got forgotten about. Yeah, so, so the, the story's over. I mean, how long was he a, a roommate of Peter Parker's? Uh, for that one... one just there, huh? story, only as far as I know, the next time we saw Captain Britain in the UK comics, he's on a plane coming back from America, and unless there were some untold stories that have not come across in the back of x-men classic or something like that i think that was it on the actual on the on, the, on a, a marvel wiki page for the issue it actually sort of says you know spider-man and captain britain had some adventures in the, and then they guessed their identities which is just rubbish <laughs> <laughs> never happened never seen never happened biting my lip there it was rubbish yes untold tales so this is uh, so what do we think of this issue what, what did you think of well, or the the story i really enjoyed it it was it had you know Beginning, middle, end, lots of danger, good mixing between the two characters. You had the traditional fight between the two characters before they become friends. And you had the debut of Arcade, which is you know, obviously the book's biggest legacy. Right. That's Yeah, this is the first, not a drill, people. This is Arcade's first. I mean, reading it now, I, I didn't realize it at first. That this is his very, very first appearance. And, of course, Claremont... Uh, would reuse uh, the character frequently in X-Men. He would, yeah. It's funny because at the end it's like, you know, ha-ha, I've invited Spider-Man to a rematch. And I'm not sure whether he ever specifically fought Spider-Man solo again because he's pretty much transferred immediately to the X-Men and that's where he's been best known ever since. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's been in X-Books uh, even more recently. I mean, uh, wasn't he running the Hunger Games comic, <laughs> whatever whatever it's called? Yeah, well... <laughs> Avengers, not Avengers, yeah, yeah, Avengers, something over there, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, he's attacking, it's it's a lot about you know putting young mutants in danger. Uh, and he's like the reverse, let's say he's the evil reverse danger room, he really is. And I actually, because of the way he was drawn by John Byrne over the years and got more and more stylized, I honestly did wonder if he was, if he was, you know, ventriloquist dummy robot, that sort of thing. Because he just mm. 
Because his, his face is just like, you know, with a weird mouth and the weird little piggy eyes and things. But no, I think he's a human being. Yeah, he's very cartoonish. So, you know, he's like he's like a Joker kind of character. He is, he is. And it's it's interesting, it's straight away the establishment he got sort of so really totally caught up in the game because he's much more interested in just the game, the arcade pinball machines and things and just actually killing the characters. Because again and again, he never seemed to, they say, you know, the introducer is murder world where nobody ever lives. And everybody lives apart from <laughs> Yeah, I don't think his um, his death rate is you know his success rate is all that high across, especially if there's superheroes involved. Let, let's say that. Yeah, did, did we ever see him put just normal people in there? Presumably he did. Presumably, I mean, pro- presumably, I mean, this is a, a very strange uh, hit to call on someone. I don't just want the person to be killed. I want them to go through murder world. I want them to be in the giant pinball machine. It is rather sort of a weird. <laughs> We, you must suffer. <laughs> yeah, well, they could have just had someone dress up as an air hostess and, you know, shoot right on the plane. I imagine maybe there's, like, an element of uh, it's all filmed so that, you know, for the entertainment of the mobster who called the hit. That could well be the case. I mean, it's just a little bit... I don't know whether Chris Claremont was intending to follow that up anywhere, but that plot line never went anywhere with all the, all the other people. I mean, presumably, the mystery woman did protect the other people who were going to get targeted. But we never we never found out who the woman in the car was talking to the, some kind of secret services at all. It just went nowhere. Yeah, that and also the the hit. Uh, you know, it's like the magia, magia or magia, however you pronounce it. You know, the fake Marvel mafia called a hit, and then oh, it's no longer an issue. You know, <laughs> is is it the mystery woman? Is the mystery woman the one who did the the hit? Or you know, it's all resolved at the end. Oh, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the mystery woman is. Against it, because she said, "I can protect the people. I can protect the people that are targeting in the UK." So she wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't one of the gangsters. So there's a little bit too much going on behind the scenes, but this often happens in a, you know, like these team up books where they have to do a one off story and resolve everything because next time it's a different character that has to be uh, friends with Spider Man. Uh, so you know, it, it this stuff happens. You just have to read between the lines and just accept it. Because here, there's a lot of there are a lot of coincidences to make this story happen. That Brian Braddock, Britain's own, you know, I won't say only hero, but at this point, yes, right. He certainly was. He was he's certainly the most prominent. I mean, over the years, you know, Roy Thomas would bring more people back and perhaps a bit operating in the background like Spitfire. But I don't think Brian ever met any other British heroes when he was having his own strip. So it just happens he has to go to the States for uh, a study trip and he immediately gets put into the same apartment as Spider-Man. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of coincidences that just to make this happen. It's part. I think it's part of the goofy fun of the team-ups that you need a, a pretext I think and so. I, this mean, is it. I wouldn't be surprised if down the years Chris Claremont sort of wrote in somewhere that Ro- Roma, who was Merlin's daughter, but she wasn't named at that point, that Roma probably wanted them to meet or something like that. But for now, yeah, goofy coincidence is fine. You know, Captain Britain's a magical hero, so fate, destiny, you know, it would be a tangible force in his life. Absolutely, yeah. They wanted him to meet Spider-Man, and he met Spider-Man. But, but yeah, <laughs> the coincidence and, and the stupidity, the, the, the lowering of their IQs, it took them so long to work out who they were. In fact, Brian didn't, did he? No, not at all. So uh, he bought the... Well, Spider-Man's, uh, you know, used to lying about this. <laughs> but yes, but how stupid you have to be that, you know, you're in the one guy in America you've met apartment. He's not there. Someone's going out of the window in a Spider-Man costume. Hmm... He's obviously kidnapped Peter Parker. No. Yeah, and then Spider-Man's also slow on the uptake because there are a lot of similarities between 
Brian and this Captain Britain character. <laughs> there are, because he notices the voice muffled as it is with, a, with an accent, and, you know, he's in the environs of the apartment, but he's actually wearing the amulet that Peter saw Brian wearing. <laughs> yeah, that's it's right. They've there. got the same, the same jewellery. Yeah, yeah. Ugly, 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 clunky bath plug thing. Yes. <laughs> I always found it strange that Captain Britain's powers were from the amulet, but then there was also this rod that appeared. And then later on, it's like there's circuitry and there's, you know, the, the powers are kind of muddled. It was, yeah, because originally the, the rod was like a stick with a few buttons that could do things like produce the force field, and then it just became a, a little more ornate star scepter. Well, wasn't it? Isn't it? Is the star scepter also the name of the thing that Starman had at one point, I think? Possibly. But, uh, yeah, you produce the force fields and blasts and this, that and the other, but they certainly couldn't settle on, you know, couldn't settle on his look or what he could do and this, that and the other. But basically, his basic power set was the old agility, speed, enhanced strength, dull stuff. Was Courtney Ross the, is she like the love interest? What was her role in the, the old uh, Captain Britain comics? Pretty much, yeah. She was like the college, the college girlfriend and the little misunderstandings here and there. She was dull as dishwater. And she's so interesting here that she's, eh, she's appears on several pages. She doesn't speak once. Yeah, that's no, right. Not the one line of dialogue. Yeah, it's kind of odd for um, Chris Claremont. It is rather. Yeah, he writes a lot of women, he, you know, a lot of female characters in the X-Men that he developed. Uh, you'd think that he'd have at least some dialogue for her, some, some characterization for her. Yes, I mean, it might actually have made more sense if, uh, given that we knew that Arcade could create illusions, if he just had, you know, a hologram of her or something else. But presumably she was on the trip as well. Oh, yeah. She just shows up in Britain. Uh, not in Britain, but I mean in New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably his whole cast were, if they, if they were needed. As with any comic book story, especially the more we look at it, the more it falls apart. Like, where is Murder World that it's connected to New York sewers? Yeah, what, what, what where, where is this? So the, the more you, you know, you, you poke it, you pick it apart, the more it falls apart. And uh, it always feels like we're doing a bit of a disservice to the story when that happens. We did enjoy it. I think the, I think the action beats are fun. Um, you know, Arcade, you're right, Arcade is uh, the, the big legacy out of this. Uh, because, yeah, and, and you'd think that Captain Britain would then more or less spring out into American comics from this appearance, but not quite. Just having him in actual, in actual full-color American comic, two issues, it just conferred a legitimacy on him. It was, we'd already had a, a story in the UK comic in which Captain Britain teamed up with Captain America versus the Red Skull, which was pretty interesting, not bad at all, but just now Captain Britain was being seen by Marvel readers all around the world, and that, that really did excite me. I felt a little, a little bit of pride, and just to see him drawn by John Byrne, and I liked Dave Hunting being inking him. It was just really, really good. And on that first cover as well, George Perez drawn Captain Britain was magnificent. I, I more or less grew up with the other costume, the Alan Davis costume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, that that first Excalibur special was the first comic I ever bought in a comic book store. Good Lord. And the only one for a long time. It's, it was uh-huh. like uh, visiting in a big metropolis Montreal, I guess. I walked in there and it was like the prototypical comic book store with the guys who have no patience for their customers. <laughs> that was one of the, you know, that was a comic that was not available on newsstands. I picked it up. It was, you know, it looked nice. It had X-Men characters on it. All right. Really my first Captain Britain story. It's not, not a bad one at all because at least you got, you got to see him in, in the better costume because the original costume, that one that was you know red and yellow, it seems the story goes that Alan Davis redesigned it because the yellow the yellow line on his chest was pretty much exactly the same as the symbol. It was stamped onto British eggs to ensure us that they were fresh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, that's something we would never have realized here, but looking at it here in action, I do like it. I mean, it's a bit strange, the, the, the blue-black around the mouth, on the mouth part uh, sometimes, but, um, I, I you know, I do enjoy that uh, more... I don't know. I don't know what to call it. Royalist kind of uniform. Well, yeah, more heraldic, perhaps. It's it, it does it does look good a lot of the time. And I don't know whether you've seen the you know the original Herb Trimby type artwork. And it it does look good. It's, it's not it's not the slickest Herb Trim job I've seen, but it's really really good fun. And he makes the costume work. But yeah, I mean, I was thinking again this afternoon that the the blue over the mouth. It's just yes, it would it would muffle him and it would be very uncomfortable. And just why? How many? How if you if you want to have the contrast, probably for the sake of recording the British flag, just pull it off. Just have a bit of pink skin or whatever colour skin you've got underneath. But I always had costumes that have the hair flowing outwards, like Kid Flash. The the new one, more like a helmet. Uh, but that's the one, yeah, that's the one I grew up on. I feel like maybe this one is a bit... Heraldic is, is probably, yes, the good word, the, the, the word you used. It's not so designy, so it doesn't feel as as much of a like a superhero costume because of that the drawing is, is very, it, you know, it's asymmetrical, it's a flat colour on his chest... Uh, you know, it can it can be odd, I guess. Yeah, the Alan Davis costume was based in part, was certainly the bottom, the bottom boot with the boots and the white tights was based in part on the on the the military, the military look of the men doing. I think it was the Napoleonic Wars, the British soldiers, and it looks pretty pretty smart. I always like that one. And it lasted a long time. It did. I, it once I started tinkering with it, it just it just got on my nerves. It's like you know, we've got a great look there, produced by a great British artist. Just leave it. But. <laughs> if they're going to take away Superman's trunks and you know Captain Britain can't complain I say one interesting thing for, for me was that uh, because the American title introducing Captain Britain because we'd obviously we, we knew Captain Britain in the UK when it was reprinted in six parts over the course of several weeks in Spider-Man and Spider-Man and Captain Britain Weekly the, the title on page one was uh, at last the encounter that you in your infinite wisdom demanded Captain Britain meets Spider-Man it's like Pretty long title, that. And did you actually request it? I certainly didn't. I, ne- I never thought to request it, to be honest. But like I say, it was really, really exciting to see. And what particularly excited me as a kid was that I thought that we were getting to see it before the Americans. But in fact, it turns out, you know, because of the on-sale dates not being the same as the cover dates, Marvel US got it about two weeks before us. So, sadness. I had one question uh, about, um, since you're the, the expert here, about the origin story. Captain Britain, well, Brian has to choose between two artifacts. There's the amulet and then there's the, the sword. And uh-huh. he choose, he chooses the amulet. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, you know, the Merlin's daughter, whatever, she, Roma, is it? Uh, she's Roma eventually, yes. Yeah. She, she's pleased with this choice. And then, you know, like you said, uh, in the synopsis. He's a scholar, not a warrior. And then, so the, he has the power of the amulet, but the amulet gives him super strength, and it seems like it turns him into a warrior regardless. It does, it does. I mean, you know, it said, you know, supposedly the sword signifies the candidate has chosen the path of violence, while the amulet represents the path of reason. But we've seen from the character, the second captain, who became known as Lionheart in the Avengers, Kelsey, that Whichever one you pick, you just end up sort of bashing people either way. Yeah, okay. So it's just maybe, um, you know, maybe one is more bloodthirsty and the other one is, uh, you know, a more controlled force. Uh, who knows? But, I think uh, I, I think I think the writer who created Lionheart might have been Chuck Dixon, can't remember offhand. I think he did show her as, more, as being more bloodthirsty. She, she, had, she had a curse that meant she couldn't see her kids when she became Lionheart Captain Britain. So it did seem that the 
the sword was a little a little a little darker. All right, so well, yeah, okay, we'll accept that. It's just it just seems like. Mm, but then, how do you do a superhero story where the person has rejected physical conflict? That becomes uh, you know a little tougher to to write that story. Absolutely. I mean, what's he going to do? Sit down with a book and then bash people with it? Let's play chess. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Every every fight is against Despero. <laughs> I did. I did like that. Uh, arcade at one point when he's having when he says the games are foot like Sherlock Holmes's Moriarty. Is that Sherlock? Oh, is that Sherlock Holmes himself? He says the games are foot. Yeah. I, I thought it was a nice point that Chris Claremont pointed out that Peter is a biology major, not an all-purpose comic book hank pin type scientist. But uh, no, it was just the book looks so much. But I was comparing and contrasting the color version with the black and white version, and the color version is so much as you'd expect, really. So much more lively. What we used to have in the British Marvel comics in the reprints, they used to say, oh, you don't have colour. We don't have colour. But we do have tones. And so you end up with sort of stories that were like black and white and lots and lots of grey. And this this one's in the UK to his credit with, instead of having Dave Hunter's colourist, it had Mark Esposito tones, presumably some relation to Mike Esposito. And it just, it looked okay, but it just, you see the American version, it's just a revelation. Yeah, we had the same, or I think even worse, I'm not even sure we had tones, in the uh, French language translations, which had the most awful lettering. <laughs> you know, all these reprints are just black and white, and an yeah. awful, awful lettering, trying to squeeze in the much longer French phrasing into oh, the, point, the same yeah. bu- yeah, into the same speech bubbles. Yeah, but that's all we had, you know, or that's all we could read at the time. We, we had uh, all the American comics, which just, you know, as a kid, wasn't quite up to that reading level yet, perhaps. Yeah. Did you get Did you get a whole story per issue, or was it chopped up? Uh, we had different versions. So we had sometimes they they published comics straight out, you know, just the same comic, or then other times, it was, and it was of course it was very late. It was like years late. Probably we were reading. 1970s stories in the early 80s. Yeah, and sometimes they would uh, they would double them up. So you'd have the one cover you'd recognize from one of the... but And then there was like a second story. It was like two issues. And then there was those jumbo books that I've talked about before where it was just a jumble of Marvel, DC, Charlton stories all mixed up. Nothing continuous at all. <laughs> Sounds rather exciting. One, one of the things <laughs> actually we had... With- which was sad for British readers, I think, was that uh, those two excellent Marvel team of covers, we, although it was over six issues in the UK, we never saw either of those covers because, presumably, because we were getting the American imports at that point, and they probably didn't want to confuse British readers by having the American covers on, but it meant that we just had really, really boring covers from the Spider-Man comics that were running in the same issue, which was a bit of a shame. But we also had, as a bonus, we had uh, four extra splash pages, which were drawn by American Marvel artists, and they weren't too bad. Sometimes when British Marvel did that, the style was so different, it looked absolutely terrible. But on this one, I mean, I could always send you one to have a look at. It wasn't too, wasn't too bad at all. It was a little, a little bonus. But I think, again, the American version just has it all over the British version. It's, you know, colour, two long reads rather than six short reads. And even so, and this is the, at the time what Marvel would publish 17-page stories. Um, you know, that's how they, they kept costs down during this, this time. Uh, so... Uh, it's a two-parter, but still only 34 pages of story. It was, but it just felt so much bigger than what we were, because we were used to get, you know, seven, you know, seven to ten pages, so just to be able to read it all in one lump. And you guys still have weekly comics, don't you? We still have weekly, like 2000 AD weekly, but we don't, yeah. we don't have the, we don't have the British Marvel weekly reprints anymore. We have full color monthly collections, which are actually very, very good value printed by, it's either Panini does the Marvel and DC, Titan does the DC or vice versa, but they're extremely good value. 
So this is the part of the show we call Who Fared Better? And it's just a little bit, few debates on which character is just to shine the most in different areas. Uh, first of all, how well does this fit either of their stories or atmospheres? So is this a Spider-Man story or is it a Captain Britain story? I would say it's a story that's very much a Spider-Man story. It's in Spider- oh. Spider-Man City. Spider-Man gets to do all the impressive things. Captain Britain's pretty much on the hop. It just feels in tone. Captain Britain's stories were in black and white, set in little hamlets or in Marvel's version of London, central London, which would have thatched cottages, fighting villains like Dr. Sin and the Vixen. Whereas this just felt like full color, proper, genuine Marvel comic. Oh well, I'll take the win if if I'm scoring points at all. All right, so let's talk cool moves then. Who had the coolest moves? What would be a great Captain Britain move in this uh, story? I really, really did enjoy the moment when Captain Britain, having seen Spider-Man leave Peter's apartment when Peter's not there, jumps out of the window with his star scepter in his hand. Begins flying by the Star Scepter, manages to catch up to Peter Parker in his Spider-Man outfit, and Spider-Man's spider sense apparently doesn't tingle enough that Spider-Man is able to stop Brian from leaping behind him, hanging off his Star Scepter like a trapeze, and kicking upwards Spider-Man in the lower chest, and just stopping him in his tracks. I think that takes guts and confidence and skill. Yeah, and uh, maybe it's magic. You know, maybe uh, Spider-Man is like Superman. His, the spider sense doesn't quite tingle when uh, there's something magical. Could be the case, it could be, but I think it's mainly because Brian's British. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, that's he's so unassuming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, for Spidey, I'd say it's the the ball breaking moment. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, double entendre in this uh, story, I'm afraid. Polish that rod. It's balls and rods, and uh, so uh, yeah, and shafts, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the ball breaking moment where he has, you know, he and Braddock have to time it just right, not just like blow up the ball, his own prison, but then hit the, you know, hit the other guy's pinball at the right time. I think that's Spider-Man's coolest moves. But then, of course, Spider-Man gets a lot of moves in this. You know, he's, he's, he's defying illusions, he's ripping out walls, he's committing sabotage, he's, uh, he's, he's saving Captain Britain from uh, drowning. It's So I got a lot of choices, I'm afraid. Sadly, you're right. I mean, Spider-Man, I mean, okay, it's Spider-Man's team-up book, but they could have been a little bit more generous with the guest star. I mean, on one of the two covers, you know, Peter Sp- Captain Britain, you know, he's basically getting carried away by Spider-Man, you know, helped out. And Peter Parker really, really is, is a star being, sadly, but hey-ho, still a good story. I'm surprised because Claremont was Captain Britain's writer before this. He was. He should really have been thinking, you know, I'm going to show what my boy can do. But yeah. in fact, he just showed what a great, what a great hero Spider-Man was. Spider-Man has, I think, the single best image in the issue where he's in the, the illusion of being in the Second World War. That's just a fantastic panel by Bernard, whoever it was. Was it still Dave Hunt at that stage or Frank Gaius? I'm not sure. But it's just an absolutely wonderful image and Captain Britain gets nothing like that. No big hero moment. Well, let's look at the, the uh, obverse of this. Dumb or weird moves. So what, you know, Captain Britain's got uh, <laughs> the lion's share, maybe? I don't know. Is there any uh, dumb or strange moves that uh, Captain Britain commits to? I think the presentation of, Sp- of Captain Britain in action is so unexciting, he doesn't even get any specific dumb moves. He's just generally so blooming passive compared to Spider-Man. I mean, as you were pretty much saying, you know, where Peter's resisting, looking for solutions, being active, he's got agency. Brian's constantly caught on the hop, he's forced to play arcades, ridiculous games, and 
I mean, he forgets his own powers, for example. He doesn't use the force field that's been established in the previous issues to his advantage when he's threatened with drowning. He could easily, you know, push the water back with the force field. And so, dumb moves, no particular moves, just Brian being dumb. And as for Spider-Man, I would say that he too forgets his powers. Because uh, in while he's in Murder World, he gets, uh, you know, he goes down a slide, and they each go down their own slide. And he falls on his on his ass. You know, there's no acrobatics there's no spider uh, sense working uh he just falls through that trap door unawares doesn't use his webbing to to hold on to you know to stop himself there are a hundred ways for spider-man to stop himself from falling here uh but no and, and he falls very unceremoniously on his bum so that's a um i, I i'm not sure it's dumb but it, it's strange that uh, suddenly spider-man has he falls on his bum but captain britain lands very softly it, almost in a Spider-Man pose. I know Spider-Man could have saved himself by shooting sticky webbing at Brian's rod. Where is the rod at this point, anyways? <laughs> Again, it just... I think it, I think it was not specifically written in the script. The artists just sometimes begin to draw these things. Yeah, the rod, uh, I think the rod... It's like he loses the rod in the first issue and then never recovers the rod. I don't know. Goodness knows. All right, let's talk about the friendly farewell. This is a team-up yeah. tradition that, at the end, the heroes should have a, you know, some nice parting words. What about this one? I think this one, the friendly farewell, is spelt tumbleweed. There's nothing happens. Spider-Man's having his conversation with Gene DeWolf. Brian's in the back of the car with Courtney Ross, and it's all from Spider-Man's point of view. Spider-Man leaves the end of the story, and there's no farewell at all. It's awful. Yeah, yeah, they've got, like, a strange, on the last page, Captain Britain sort of gives Spider-Man a look. There's sort of, sort of a little flashing from coming from Spider-Man, like they have a who kind of, I don't know, they have like, I don't know, a, an unspoken moment. Absolutely. I mean, it could be because they know they're going to be seeing each other at tea time or something, but still, for the benefit <laughs> of the story, they should have said, you know, goodbye, pip pip, something like that. Yeah, nothing there. And as, and as far as we know, there's no story that shows Brian Braddock's time uh, in New York and then, you know, maybe th- th- those two guys... Uh, saying goodbye, you know, at the airport or something. Sadly not, no. We need an untold story or telling. Unless people out there know of any of these stories. But uh, my research hasn't, you know, recovered any uh, either. No, and and in all the times that Brian has met Peter over the years, I don't think they've ever, ever referred to the fact that they were roommates for presumably several weeks. He was getting 50 bucks a week for this. So there's there's no, you know, it's not just one week. It has to be at least two or three. Oh, well, I mean, there's a great classic Captain Britain Spider-Man miniseries that could come out of this. This is what fresh start from Marvel really needs. <laughs> uh, we'll take a break now for a couple of promos, and then we'll be back to wrap things up. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics, The Once and Spider-King, a new graphic novel starring Amalgam UK's Brit invasion sensation, Peter Braddock, the Albion Arachnid, when he chose the spider amulet over that of the leopard, he never realised the latter would go to a dangerous man like Lord Craven. It's the battle of the ages for the soul of a nation. Available wherever imaginary books are sold. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. 
Professor Zoom Yukinori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. We're back. Uh, One final feature, the bonus team-up, in which each of us proposes a perfect Captain Britain team-up. So, Martin, what have you thought? I think that I would like to team this original iteration of Captain Britain, the posh student who smoked a pipe and was a tad sexist, with another patriotic hero, Quality Comics Miss America, the World War II character who, with her godlike powers of transmutation far, far beyond anything Firestorm could do, Mm. could challenge his ideas of what a woman could do, and they could swap notes on their origins because both received their powers via patriotic visions. Brian from Merlin and Roma, and Miss America from the Talking Statue of Liberty. Right, right. Well, yeah, so they have a point in common. That was, that's a strange Marvel DC team up. But I've also thought of one, <laughs> a strange Marvel DC crossover that nobody asked for. So mine would be Captain Britain and Camelot Three Thousand. Ah. Captain Britain jumps a thousand years through time helps the resurrected Knights of the Round Table fight Mordred and Morgane Le Fay. And really, the only question you have to ask is whether it's drawn by Alan Davis or Brian Bolland. Either way, we win, <laughs> basically. Yeah, there's no wrong choice. I think you know, I think if you get Alan Davis to draw it, you won't have to wait a thousand years. Brian Bolland is much, much slower than Alan Davis. <laughs> I think, interestingly or not, Alan Davis has the same birthday as me, and I once saw him at a convention, mentioned this, and he was grumpy, like he always is. <laughs> Thanks for teaming up with me, Martin. Uh, can you remind people where they can find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at at Mart Gray, G-R-A-Y. I do a weekly blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, mainly reviewing DC and Marvel comics, mainly DC at the moment because I've not been enjoying Marvel too much. And if you're not finding it joy, then let's not be negative. But that can be found just by putting in Too Dangerous for a Girl into your favorite search engine. And a reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments, and the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcast. I told Captain America that I'd duff up a few of those Hydra rotters causing trouble in the area as a favor. That's F A V. Oh, you are...